Welcome to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire podcast. We are your host. I am Hunter Johnson. And I'm Thomas Baldridge. Boy, Thomas, I'm pretty excited about this podcast we're fixing to have here. I'm no, I don't even want to make a lot of small talk. I think we ought to ought to jump right into it here pretty quick. What uh, what's your thoughts? Man, my thoughts are uh, it's raining harder than I've seen it rain in the entire. Well, I started to say the entire year, but we're in a new year. But in all of 2022, it's raining harder right now than it did at any point during 22. We're under tornado watches. So if I wind up getting knocked offline here, um, I'll, I'll either get back in here or I'll be gone to see the Lord. Well, <laughs> that's uh, that may happen with me here too. I told you a minute ago before we, we started on, that, on here that uh, the sun had popped out for a minute. Well, it's definitely gone now and it's spooky and we've got a uh, – a line of sight, tower to tower internet kind of deal. So I hope this whole thing doesn't flop on us and hope we can get it, get it recorded best we can. But, you know, we're all pretty active on Facebook. I think most people that, that listen to us have found us on social media and kind of follow along with us. And, uh, you know, we've, uh, I've seen some posts here lately that kind of, sparked me to want to do this podcast but um we are joined today with uh uh three different foresters that are also phenomenal um habitat managers and um we're going to stretch them out from the uh, north to the south so we've got uh Kyle Liebarger from Alabama we've got Derek Denny from Missouri and we've got Greg Burnson from Pennsylvania. So how you doing, guys? Good. Doing good. Well. All right. Um, well, let's start with the South. Uh, Kyle, I think most everybody knows you, especially the older women on TikTok. But uh yeah. let's let's uh let's find out a little bit about for those that don't know who you are, what you do, and and all that good stuff. Yeah, the the guys know me too on there. Um, <laughs> it, whether that's a good thing or bad thing, uh, but yeah, my name is Kyle Iberg. I'm a forester in Alabama. Uh, started the Native Habitat Project on on started out on TikTok. Now it's on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and and all those places. But uh, we have a podcast, Native Habitat Podcast, and uh, just uh, been a forester for five years, uh, buying timber, uh, doing a lot of consultations. Now it's mostly uh, most of my concentrations towards like prescribed burning and and wildlife consulting i still do some timber stuff but um that's a uh, kind of focusing more on wildlife and conservation stuff now great great thank you let's move to missouri Derek denny tell us about you you've been on here a couple times with us but uh for those that miss those for whatever reason it might be tell us who you are what you do and a little about yourself all right i'm Derek denny I'm a forester here in Missouri. Uh, I work for Heartland Forest Consulting here, right in the middle of the middle of the state. Uh, we basically do anything, anything and everything in-house. We'll do uh, anything from habitat management, rewrite prescription plans, we write management plans, anything from marking timber to invasive control. We do it all. Great. So, I've right. been working for them for quite a while, and everything works out pretty pretty darn good. We we basically cover the entire state. Okay, okay, I love it. Let's move on to Pennsylvania. How about you, Greg? So my name's uh, Greg Burnson. I own Burnson Timber Management, and I'm a I'm a one man show. Um, I guess brief background. I did my forestry schooling in in New Hampshire. I grew up in in New England actually and chased a girl to Pennsylvania and the rest is history. So we're still still married and um I'm a little different I guess in that I uh I actually own the equipment and do a lot of um I I cut a lot of timber. Um but the focus is is very heavy to um improvement thinning cutting a lot of pulpwood and low grade and um 
I, I still still put on the Forrester hat a lot of the times. Most of my clients, there's a there's a plan and inventory work and that sort of stuff done up ahead of time. Um, depending on the scope of the project, being a one man show, I some of the small scale invasive treatment. If it's only spots here and there, I'll deal with it. If it's larger scale, I I don't have anybody. I'll I'll sub some of that out or I'll hump chemical for a guy so that we can can cover some ground because. Um, there's a lot, lot of it. And I, I can't be in a cut the length processor and running a backpack blower and writing a management plan all at the same time. So, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it seems that one of the most common things that I hear on social media, when we're talking about habitat is, well, that might work in the South, but that doesn't work in the North or vice versa. Well, we got three guys on here that I would say are probably some of the best in the business. And uh, we're going to get to the bottom of some of this. So I think it's going to be a great podcast. So um, I think the first thing that I would like to know the answer to is how do these folks, how do you go about picking a consultant? Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a joke. Um what do you call the the person that graduated at the bottom of their class from the worst medical school in the world? You still call them doctor. And, you know, it's the same can be said with a habitat consultant or a forester or, um, uh, uh, you know, whatever route you're going to go. Um, you know, a lot of people, if they need some timber work done, one of the first things they're going to do, especially if it's a commercial thinning, they're going to call a, a licensed forester. Um, but we've learned quick that they're not all created equal. And some of them you're never going to get where you want by calling them. And uh, some of them might be able to handle everything you got from, from any of your wildlife consulting to how you want to lay it out to hunt and vice, vice versa. So we, you know, I think that the group of us probably have all agreed that uh, Matt and Adam with Land and Legacy do a phenomenal job on covering a lot of the bases, but they can't be everywhere, and probably not everybody is going to um, be their first call when when they they're looking for somebody. But I see this question asked a lot on social media: Is who do y'all recommend? to come tell me what needs to take place on my property. So back to the original question, if you know nothing about wildlife management, how do you pick a consultant? Kyle, what do you think? Um, honestly, I think social media might be a good place to start because uh, I think you're going to get a lot of honest answers from a bunch of different people, um, more so than just calling, a, calling around to a few different people, seeing their experiences. But um, personally, you know, there's, there's way more foresters that I, I probably wouldn't want managing my timber per, from a you know just me personally if I was to call somebody and just like give them the all the all the rights to to manage my timber there's a lot of them that I wouldn't wouldn't allow there's very few that I I would allow to and that's mostly due because in forestry school they're teaching us how to make the most money we possibly can off of the track of timber um and 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 very it's, it's rare to find a forester or loggers or or anybody in the woods who's focusing on making sure those ecosystems are, are healthy and functional and they're going to be just as good for the next generation as they are this one so that's that's that'd be my advice is look for somebody who who is thinking long term um who isn't just thinking about making some money right now um which i mean that's not a bad thing landowners need to make some money but you want you want somebody who's also thinking for the long term Right, right. And and what you said, I agree with 100%. I know some some foresters and some habitat managers, probably more bad ones than I do good ones. And, you know, they may be good for some yeah. people for some objectives, but... uh, And we uh, were we were all... Oh, sorry. I interrupted you. Uh, no, no, you're good. Go ahead. We, we were... All of us here were, were bad land managers at one point. So there's nothing That's wrong right. with that. That's right. Well, we've got some that claim to be professionals that I don't know that I'd pay... $25 to let them mow my yard. But uh <laughs> <laughs> but we've got some like, like you guys that are absolutely phenomenal. So let's roll on that same question to Derek. What what do you think, bud? How do you how do we how, how do you pick a consultant? 
Well, the, the very first thing I would want somebody to do before they even picked a consultant is have their goals in mind. You know, that's going to be one of the things, first things that a good consultant's going to ask. They're not going to come in and tell you that, hey, this is what you're going to need to do. A good consultant's going to ask, what do you want out of this? Where do you want this to go? I'm kind of unique in the aspect that I have a background in both wildlife and forestry. So I can take you both different directions. Uh, same with my company. It doesn't really matter which direction you want to go with it. We can kind of get you there. But I agree with Kyle. Social media is going to be a really good aspect to get a lot of people's opinions. Right. Another, another place is jump into your state, your state agencies, your NRCS, Coil Forever, Pheasants Forever. Any of those guys that have worked with any of the better consultants is going to recommend you one of those consultants another thing uh, i know missouri we have a missouri state forestry consultant uh group that you can get on the facebook uh website and look and see what each one of those foresters offers right. so anywhere from management plans invasive control wildlife habitat management you know there's a list in there that you can actually go in and say, hey, look, this guy offers this many prescriptions. That might be something that you want to look for. That's right. That's right. Well, let's move up to Pennsylvania here. Greg, how about you, bud? What's your thoughts on how do we how do we pick that right consultant, whether it's a forester or a wildlife manager or whatever? So, um. I guess I, I would, with a, with a little bit of caution, I would say that the average landowner may not find the right person right out of the gate. And so I guess to not to rehash what the other guys have said, but to give a little food for thought, maybe, um, if you get somebody out on your property along with 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 what Derek just said about you know have your have your goals in mind right out of the gate the consultant should be asking you what those are but then you you need to be able to to know when you're being fed a line of bull um and i think one of the easiest ways to do that is it is very very rare that i walk a property that does not have some challenges. So, you know, it's sort of like akin to going to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you like your lifestyle. So eating McDonald's three days a week or three times a day rather and washing it down with a two liter of Mountain Dew is totally fine. Like mm -hmm. if somebody isn't pointing out invasives and uh, anything else that might be going on on your property, and just starts talking about dollars and cents right out of the gate, that's probably not somebody that's really going to align with your goals. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, Thomas, I, I don't know that there's many people on the planet that has had enough, um, that has had as many professionals out to their place as what you could, might have. Um, what's your take on all of the folks that's been out to your place? We won't name any names, but they all have, uh, um little bit different perspective on how to go about things you know of course i'm sitting here thinking of all the people that's been there um you didn't have any idiots in the bunch so um they all going to be pretty close to uh some of the same recommendations but what's your thoughts on uh, a lot of the folks that you've had out well uh you know these guys bring up some really good points and you know their perspective from from my perspective uh, can be a, a little bit different. And they all touched on some things that they made me jot down a handful of notes from everybody that, that had input. And um, part, part of my, my nature and my education uh, and, and previous job was, was investigations. So when it comes to investigating things, that's, that's what I do. Um, 
and that can be any, any topic, man. You, once you learn how to investigate, you can investigate a lot of stuff. So part of my pursuit was to try and find not, I hate to say the truth, but to actually find the truth, you know, who, who's telling me the truth, who's got my best interest at heart. How can I balance some of these things? You know, one of the first biologists that came, he asked me what my goals were. Well, man, my goals are, you know, to become a millionaire and shoot uh, Boone and Crockett bucks off my front porch and shoot quail and turkey off my back porch. I mean, I, you know, what do you mean my goals? What are my goals? What are you even talking about? You know, so that was hard for me to be able to quantify them. It's even at NRCS, they want, you know, or they used to, they would want you to rank your goals. Well, I care about my timber and making money just as much as I do about having quail and turkeys and big deer. So I really don't want to put one ahead of from the other. And then, you know, one of the guys mentioned something about uh, wildlife versus timber production. I want my cake. I want to eat it too. Can, right. can we do both? Where do we do those things? Um, you know, where, where do we put emphasis on and, and you know, that, that this area should be more dedicated for wildlife because it's not going to grow good timber that's marketable. And maybe this area over here is, or how, how do we work through that? And then for me, if I had it to do over again in picking a consultant, I would ask for a few references not mm -hmm. just to talk to on the phone, but I want to, I want to hook up with you. Let's eat lunch and let's visit three properties, five properties that, that you have managed and that are in different phases. Like early on, they still have invasive, invasive stuff everywhere. Maybe you've been managing this other property for a handful of years. I want to talk to that landowner and then maybe one that you've managed for 10, 15, years or more uh or or at least is further along in the process being able to walk those properties or get on a side by side and most landowners and foresters or biologists that i have met they are all willing to do that uh they are busy but if 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 they are not able to be there they would at least put me in contact with the landowner and that landowner most of them are just like we are and they have been where we've been and they're more than welcome for you to come to their property. Uh, that's my experience anyway. And when I have got to visit those places, man, it's been invaluable. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And, and I love visiting some of these places that guys have really been, been involved with, but yep. Eric, Derek, what you got, I know you're chomping at the bit there on something. I was going to say, I, I was going to mention too, everybody's got to remember that the consultant works for you. That's right. So That's right. if they're in there trying to push something that you're not really wanting to go for, that's a bad sign. So the consultant, you got to remember this consultant works for the property owner. That's right. That's right. So what, what, um, I've read a couple of posts on social media lately where guys were, and these were professional consultants, but they were actually trying to discourage people from uh, controlling invasives, um, promoting some non-native stuff like autumn olive and privet because it's supposed to be good for your deer and different things like that. And since, uh, since Greg brought up invasives first while ago, um, Greg, let's talk about some of the invasives that you deal with uh, in Pennsylvania. I'm sure we've got a lot in common with what we deal with from, from the north to the south, but uh, what do you see up there, and and how do you deal with some of this uh, these invasives you see? So I would say, you know, in, in our old field settings, olive and, and bush honeysuckle are going to be the two multiflora rows. You could throw that in there. In Forested settings, which is usually where I'm at, um, multiflora rose still. Japanese barberry is a bad one. Um, that one can be a real pain in the butt just because of the, the seed has a pit in it and birds spread it. Um, Japanese stilt grass is a real bad one. I think that's that's becoming more and more prolific. In my part of the state, we're, I'm almost to the New York border, actually. Um, 
we're starting to see more mile a minute, which I'm sure you guys down south have at least heard of or seen that that one's really miserable. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's in, in an I, ideal situation, the the landowner, I, I've been pretty fortunate, I will say, in that a lot of times the landowners I'm working with in whatever way they've come to find me, they they seem to know they have a problem already. So I don't have to tell them it's a problem. Um, they're just looking for some help in, in either finding some cost share funding or finding somebody to do it. And, you know, most of the time they're looking to do some changes in their, their forest as well. But, um, very rarely do I actually have to, to sell somebody on it. And I've had a few instances though, where I pointed them out and I will say that, um, I know pretty quick if I'm not a fit for the landowner too. And I don't, I, I say that, you know, I, I don't, I don't fight with a landowner. If a landowner calls and, and says, you know, we're, we're looking to do a bunch of timber work and it's clear to me, they want to high grade their woods and they don't care about that stuff. Sorry, I'm not your guy. And I, you know, politely remove myself from that because um, I, I don't, I don't need to go and, and do the work. I, I think it reflects poorly on, on what I'm trying to do for me in my business and the direction I want to go. So, um, yeah, I, I would say those are the, you know, to get back on topic, those are the the biggest ones. Stilt grass probably being the, the worst one. That stuff seems to show up everywhere anymore. So. Man, that, that, so that comment you made about if somebody wants to high grade their timber, um, you're going to, uh, politely remove yourself from that, that, that I'm not your guy for a guy that is the one running the chainsaw and marketing the logs and, and, uh, making a living off of the cutting, uh, you know, as well as, as the recommendations for wildlife, you know, that's, that's huge. It's, uh, uh, really, really, uh, gain a lot more respect for a guy like that. That's, uh, um, you know, most loggers would jump at a high grade situation. Um, they will in Arkansas, I can tell you. They'll be more than happy to put it on the truck. I guarantee you. And take it to the mill. Because I, it, it means a lot of money to them. Absolutely. I absolutely. I would rather, and I think I, I'm in company enough to say this, I I will work at encouraging a landowner to to change their opinion. And I will usually explain to them that I would rather I would rather clear cut it than high grade it and give the forest a chance to start over before I am just going to go diameter cut or pluck all your white oak and, and leave a crappy stand of maple and beach brush. Um, but if, if that's, that's what they're, you know, hell bent on doing, I'm, I'm not going to put my name on it. So. Man, that's, that's phenomenal. Um, Derek, I'm going to change the question up just a little bit now that I'm to you, because I know you do a lot of contract work um, as well as uh, make recommendations. Um, but sometimes that's a tough field to play when when you're the contractor and the consultant. Um, I've got a buddy that does a lot of contract work and he gets these weird calls from guys, from, from landowners. Uh, one of them I remember here, not too long ago, he got a call and a guy had 40 acre block of native prairie grass that he wanted to put horses on and wanted it all disc up, sprayed out, disc up, and wanted him to plant Bermuda grass across all of it uh, for as far as horses. And, you know, as a new contractor, you're sitting there seeing the dollar signs, man, I can make money off the spraying, I can make money off of the discing, I can make money off of... Um, selling him Bermuda grass seed. I make money off of planting it, coming back, fertilizing it, liming it, blah, 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 on and on. And it's hard to be the guy that says, no, I'm not doing that. And on the same token, you've got these guys that, oh, my grandpa planted all of that Cerise Lespedeza up there. And man, that's why we've got quail right now. I don't want it messed with. But one of the biggest ones I see is uh, I was helping on a burn last year and a guy said, I want to burn everything but this real nice cedar glade that I've got over there. Don't mess with my cedar trees on my cedar glade. Um, how in the world do you do you separate yourself as a contractor and a consultant, um, especially if you're a new contractor starting out where you need the work 
but the guy's just totally out there in left field. Um, how, how do we do the right thing in a situation like that? Well, really and truly, education will go a long way. But for the contractor himself, it's going to be something that you're going to have to live with. You're going to have to be able to put your name on that. So if you're a just, just beginning wildlife consultant and you go in to do something like that, that just destroys any wildlife habitat potential that that might have, that's going to be on your conscience and on your resume for your entire life, your entire career. That's right. So that's, it's going to be hard to walk away from the dollar signs. Yep. That's right. But it's going to be worth it in the long run. Yep. That's right. That's right. Um, Kyle, I'm going to change that same question up just a little bit for you as well. Um, I don't know that I know many foresters that that I know these other two guys sitting here with you do as well. Uh, but I don't know many that that push restoration projects as much as what you do, whether it's prairie restoration or old field or timber restoration. Um, there's not a lot of foresters out there like you guys, and you're pretty vocal on social media and your native habitat project about some of this, but but how do we convince these landowners that restoration is what they really need? I think I think the opposite, trying to make the landscape something it doesn't want to be ends up causing you more problems in the long run. If I'm looking at a track of timber and it wants to be a savanna, it's a south-facing slope, and they want to grow big timber on it, there's going to be problems. They're going to have a ton of problems in the future because of that. So if you're managing that forest for what it wants to be, a savanna, you're going to you're likely going to have better timber production, better wildlife value. You're going to have more biodiversity in the long run. And the person who owns that property after you is going to be thanking you instead of cussing you for doing something wrong. And 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 that's who we got to think of is who's going to be there after us, um, because that's. I don't, I don't know about y'all, but my life would be a whole lot easier if, if our, if every generation before us did things, you know, the right way and didn't introduce invasives and, and, uh, didn't high grade timber. Um, and so that's the kind of land manager I'm looking to be is the kind of person I wish was managing the landscape before me. Um, but yeah, that, I, I push a lot of, a lot of habitat restorations. I put, I, I love biodiversity. Um, you know, the more native plant diversity you have, the more wildlife diversity you're, you're going to have and the more game species you're going to have and, and the, the cooler forest and ecosystem you're going to have. And to me, that's, that's what I want to walk through a property and see is just a, an ecosystem that is, is cl that, that's happy, that has everything it needs, fire, um, if that's what it needs. Um, and, it's, and all those plants, you can tell when a place is happy and when it's not. And, and uh, more, more times than not, I look at a place and it, and it really needs something. And so that's, that's what I try to do as a forester, I guess, and land managers to give those places what they need and make sure they're happy and, and biodiverse. But, yeah, that's just that's, that's how I like to do things. And, and I'm not going to – and I, I'm going to sleep good at night doing those things. So, Absolutely. That's refreshing answers from all three of you. I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, there, there is a, uh, there's, I think y'all know what I'm going to, what I'm meaning when I say we can walk through the woods and the woods talk to us. Um, you know, we're seeing y'all are basing all 100% of your recommendations for, for landowners are based on what you see growing there now what used to be there you're, you're walking through the timber you're looking and and if everybody could do this then then the timber tracks would be such a better place if you could walk through and identify the big mother trees that are still there identify the mid story trees that's popped up in the last 20 to 30 years and rec and recognize your underbrush that has popped up in the last five to ten and what species those are, what should be there, what shouldn't be there, what wants to be there, and what doesn't. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that just want to manage for one specific uh, critter, and, you know, everybody's got deer on the brain. If we could get all of these hardcore deer guys 
to manage for our least adaptable species on the property, whether that be quail or whatever it might be, grouse, then everything else seems to kind of fall in place. Does everybody agree with that? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what do y'all, uh, when y'all go to a new place, have y'all ever been to a place, has, has anybody on here ever been to a place that was 100% like it should be? No, no, I, I have, but it's, it's, it's because it's a, it's had a good landowner that's, and it's been in their family for a hundred years and they've been burning it and, and doing everything that they're supposed to be doing to it. And it was the still to this day, the, the coolest property I've ever walked through. Um, Bob White's, you could whistle them up like turkeys. I mean, they're every direction, deer, incredible turkey populations, um, this, there's people there doing entomology. There's 11,000 acres, people doing entomology surveys and bird surveys. And this place was incredible. Um, very few invasives because it had a good landowner who, whose family's been treating invasives, burning it and giving it this place what it needs for 100 plus years. Is it was That's the only place I've been on is like that. It's very rare. Well, I'm jealous. I know everybody that that listens to our podcast wants their property to be the best it can be we see a lot of these recommendations and and we hear other people say well just go hinge cut um you 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 need to you need your property could really benefit from some major hinge cutting we hear people say well you need some Mm -hmm. uh you need some switchgrass monocultures for your deer to bed in you need uh you need some screening let's plant some giant miscanthus um for some screening um, you need corn fields. You need you need more forage soybean fields. Um, but really, I think most all of that would be at the bottom of my list, and some of it I would never even consider doing. Um, these critters can get everything they need from what wants to grow there. Correct? Yeah. Yes. Thomas, I know you've got to. Let's let's start on them notes you've been making. Uh, Man, so one, uh, I'll let maybe Kyle and and de- well, whoever really wants to answer this, but I did have a guy that that sent some messages via Facebook, and he has heard all of us talk about slopes and what species should be there, and he's like, y'all keep talking about slopes. He's like, I live in a flat frying pan, man. He said, there ain't a hill around here. There's not one foot of elevation change throughout my whole property. So I tried to walk him through what we're actually talking about and why we're why we've keyed in to that small ecotype, if you will. Um, can can you maybe Kyle walk through? I mean, you you've got some varying varying topography where you're at. So can you walk through some different stuff and uh, as far as topography goes and what indicators you might see to help you recognize a certain a certain area and what it should be. Yeah. So, you know, North facing slopes, I'm usually seeing big timber, uh, lots of spring ephemerals. Um, there's, you know, there's that soil over there is holding a lot more moisture. So you're, you're going to have, um, you're going to have a, a lot of, uh, a lot of large oaks and some shrubby component to it, but a lot of spring ephemeral South slopes is going to be thick. Um, usually those places are going to want to be savannas. Uh, and east and west slopes can be like that too, depending on on uh, which one it is. I mean, it, it, every property is different. Some east and some east slopes want to act like a north slope. Some west slopes want to act like a north slope, and vice versa. But on flat areas, that's where it, it does get difficult. And usually around here, that's those are places that used to be prairie, and a lot of that flat ground has been you know converted to ag fields or or uh, pastures, um, and so it, it makes it a little difficult to figure out what used to be there and what's supposed to be there, because um, those places have been disturbed so much over the past 200 years, and, and so uh, on those flat areas, I usually look, if I'm driving around trying to figure out what used to be on a property, you, you can you can drive around and usually figure out, find a find a little block of timber that hadn't been cut in a long time, or, or a power line uh, corridor, and there's going to be a lot of native plant diversity on those usually. And so that's what I usually look for to try to figure out what used to be there. But um, yeah, the, the slopes, 
uh, slopes do vary. Um, I'll, um, south slopes are going to be probably the the easiest to to identify. Or I mean, those those it's usually always around here going to be savanna. Those south slopes and the ridge tops are going to get a lot of sunlight. They're going to be really dry and crunchy, and so they would have had a lot more fire. Um, and you can you can see that when you're burning a, a property, you're not ever going to want to start a south slope at the bottom of the hill because it's going to it's going to roar up the side of it and you're going to, you're going to kill some trees. And that's, that might've been what happened naturally, you know, nature didn't start fires at the tops of hills all the time. So that's probably what happened naturally. And it probably killed a lot of trees. Therefore it kept those Southern slopes more like savannas and open and had a lot of grasslands on them. Um, but that's, uh, I went all over the place there, but maybe that answered it. No, I, I think it's great. Um, I think Thomas, just since he just finished, Let's, that was in, in down in Alabama. Let's jump all the way to Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. yep, let's do it. That'd be good. Greg, um, what do you think, buddy? So I'm going to look at a soils map probably um, just because – so my area of Pennsylvania is referred to as the Allegheny Plateau. So we have some fairly high elevations that are flat. Um, the one, one challenge and – go back way 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 back historically we didn't have probably the the level of hardwood now pennsylvania is known as we're the hardwood lumber capital of the u.s but um there was a lot more pine and, and hemlock forests here at the turn of the century um hemlock was cut and the bark stacked up the tan hides way back in the late 1800s and early 1900s so um, if we're at high elevation, fairly shallow soils, we know it's going to grow oak or, or should be most likely an oak system. Um, our north facing slopes, we're far enough north that you're seeing true northern hardwood. So uh, sugar maple, basswood, ash used to be a, a bigger component, but we've got ash borers gone through here and knocked a bunch of them out. So um and similar to what Kyle said, you know, sometimes you can just drive and, you know, walk, walk around the property. And if everything's up on, on sign, kind of the same Ridge and the neighbor next door hasn't cut timber for a hundred years and you can see, okay, well, there's, there's still big Oak in that. And I can see some old stumps on this one that looks like there should be Oak here, but it was plucked out 30 years ago. Well, that, that tells you, okay, we're, we're growing a lot of red maple and beach brush maybe, but we shouldn't be. Um, then you know then 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 you're going to put on your forester hat and say can can we restore it to to oak do we reset it you know that that's where you start weighing the options of of what you do um i would also say too and, and i don't know how it is in other states but um our state land system actually has some some uh, a number of acres of mature timber and so you may see the ridge you're trying to work on is very comparable to a similar system on a 200,000 acres state forest. And, and that might tell you, okay, this is similar soil, similar aspect or, or similar flat slope, same elevation. This is what, this is what an undisturbed tract of timber that the state's had for a hundred years looks like. So maybe that's what this should be. Great stuff. Great stuff. I know here where I live, we're pretty well flat as a pancake. If you got an elevation change, it's over four foot. It was built by machinery. It's had tractor and dirt scoops, a track hole or a dozer. We call them levees, not ridges. So <laughs> there's uh we we don't have any ridges. Now I talk about ridges when I walk across the, the woods, but we're talking about, you know, a six inch to one foot elevation change that this goes underwater very often and this not quite as often. And you know, that's bottomland hardwoods. And but we have to keep it as bottomland hardwoods. We don't make it something that it's not. So, you know, our focus is always getting rid of some junk and regenerating some better stuff. And and you know, that's where I think a lot of crop tree release type stuff comes in uh for regeneration and acorn production and and uh and to maximize timber growth uh comes in on a lot of that. But uh what else you got, Tom? What, what let let uh, Derek jump in there on what he sees in Missouri since we're following this this same line here. All right, good idea. Well, I I kind of agree with both of them there because a 
here in Missouri, I'm going to have a little bit of everything. I've got the Ozarks to the south and most of the plains up in the northern part of the state. So I can see some major differences in topography. Um, if I'm going on a property that doesn't have a lot of elevation change, that, that's one of the first things I'm going to be looking for is a soil comp just to see what that grows well, basically. Then once I can understand that soil comp, I'll be in there putting boots on the ground, looking, seeing what we've got. Now, some of those areas might have a, a huge rocky outcropping on it. Uh, they might be completely bottomland. You know, anything, any little elevation change, it might only be two or three acres but that two or three acres of that property might be managed completely different than the rest of it. So it really depends on a, your soil comp, then your species comp. Yeah. i tell you, I was with a, um, uh, a green Bay packaging forester and we were in pine plantation in the foothills of the Ozarks. And we were looking where to, to place uh, a logging deck where we could skid, skid some timber to and delimit and load it and get it going. And uh, we got on a ridge top um, that was a nice, nice, nice ridge top. And it broke both ways, you know, from there with a north and a south facing slope. And he said, let's, let's put it right here. I think this will be best. He said, I don't even know why they cut this. And, and it made me stop a minute. Now these, these are guys who it's dollars and cents. Every square inches needs to be grown a pine tree. And I looked at him, I said, what? He said, I don't even know why we cut this. He said, we should have just left this alone. And now this is an older forester too, by the way, he's not in his thirties or forties. I mean, he's, he's been doing this a while. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, this is just stupid. He said, we're, we're never going to yield any money out of this particular spot. And these are the guys that that's, I mean, that's what he's here for is to grow, grow trees for dollars. And even he realized and educated me that that, that particular area was better left alone in a, in a hardwood savanna type setting on that ridgetop and that South facing slope than for them to put genetically modified loblolly pine trees on it and try and make a dollar. And he's like, we should have never, he said, this, this will never actually pay off the money we've gotten cutting it, the money we're going to have to come and thin it. This, this ridge top right here and a little bit of South facing slope is ne it's never going to break even. And he said, so let's just put a dedicated logging deck here and we'll always skid logs here. He said it was stupid that we ever cut it. That that had a lasting impact on me, just just because of of his perspective, and um, you know, and and it it just it floored me that he would even say that because, you know, I always thought that for them, you know, it, the world needs to be growing loblolly pines, but even he, I hate to say this, was was smarter than that, and um, you know, it, it it shocks me too. I think you have maybe three basic different types of landowners you've got some that they don't have a clue at all they they're not they're not one way or the other they may have we all have our own little biases and you have some that are so far off caught up on tv and social media they're so far the other direction it, it, it's it's just crazy you, you know there's not much if i was a consultant those are the people i would want to walk away from or refer to my buddy <laughs> You know, man, let me give you a card. I got some cards of my buddy in the truck. Let me give you one of his. And, and those guys, you know, they, they're not worried about invasives. They think they're going to change the world, you know, in a food plot or a feeder or, or, or whatever the case may be. And then you kind of got the guys that are in the middle and they're trying to find their way. I think two of those, you can help the third one. You know, I don't, I don't think you can. And, and what happens on social media is, is people get to sharing their opinions so much. And that's great if we have the platform to logically talk through this. I think that's one of the greatest things that we're, we're as humans, we're able to do is sit down and have a, a good discussion about things and actually come away with some good thoughts. 
The problem is, is when you delete a hundred comments because they don't fit your agenda or you're pushing a certain narrative or you're, you're telling people to leave invasives. And I know some people probably don't want to go down this road with me, but, and that's fine, but um, I'm not a global warm warming political nut. I'm a pretty conservative guy, but we have had climate change. You cut it however you want to cut it. And we have, we have had significant habitat loss and change. And when, when Autobahn, I wish we would have included Jonathan Young from Autobahn on this, but when Autobahn sitting there having research done on climate change or habitat loss, and there are songbirds that are dependent upon a little bit of both or influenced more by both. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to think about the habitat loss that we've had because we either grandpa told us to value that, that oak tree, no matter what it needs, we need to be growing oak trees. And we, we lost maybe some Savannah. We lost some habitat on those South facing slopes. We, or maybe we got money hungry and we thought we were going to pay for the land by growing whatever on it. Um, and we just changed a lot. And I think it's really hurt us. And, you know, you see the smaller things, the insects, your butterflies. I'm, I know I sound like I'm a, a liberal hippie right now. I, I do understand that. I apologize to all my conservative friends who are losing their minds right now. But I'm know, starting to see that side of you more and more. I've I know. I know. It's just, to, you know, just love it. Love. You just need to keep loving everybody. But <laughs> look at the insects, the butterflies, then your quail, then your turkey. Guys, come on. This is really easy to put the pieces of the puzzle mm -hmm. together. Well, the question that I'm dying to ask, and I'd like to hear, I'd like to hear everybody's opinion. You know, turkeys are a big topic across most of the U.S. the The numbers seem to be declining, and what have y'all are out there every day? Nobody on this podcast sits behind a desk. Everybody, all of us, are out there every day, and we're looking at large areas across sometimes multiple states uh, or the entire state. Um, I would like to hear from each one of you what you see in general in your area that you cover that could be done to promote more turkeys on, on those private lands that you look at. Let's start with you, Kyle. Um, put the bush hog away and, uh, and cut some timber. Um, that's really, to me, that's the biggest thing. Um, everything is mowed. You drive around. And every every property is bush hogged at least a couple times a year. Um, no nesting cover, no no seed producing forbs, no wildflowers or native grasses that are attracting and holding insects. Um, so therefore, you have no nesting habitat, no brooding habitat. Um, my buddy Alan Summerford, y'all probably see him on Facebook and some of the groups. Um, he did a uh, select cut on his property a couple years ago, and it and it ended up it would we cut the junk out of it, left the, left the, the white oaks and, and hickories and turned it back into a savanna. And this year, this spring, he had, he was sitting there, uh, had a gobbler in front of him, one coming in behind him. And then he had 17 Jake's walk between him and the gobbler. And just, it, he, he was just like flabbergasted the he he knew it was going to improve turkey numbers but the the amount that it improved was was insane and that just goes to show when you when you give them the habitat they need um it, it's going to improve and, and he was sitting there in a stand this year and he we're going to be putting that podcast out soon where he talks about this but he's he's sitting there looking at eight eight bucks and uh, and most of them are eight points or better like just sitting there in a savannah looking down on them and they're, and it because they're and they're walking through midday because it's so thick in there nothing can see them um and they feel safe and he's burning it and it's he's maintaining it as a savannah um just it's really cool when you can manage for wildlife and manage the landscape the way it's supposed to be and, and to me that's just a win-win and all you know all around kyle you you think you can have your cake and eat it too as far as managing for wildlife and for your timber quality or timber production maybe yeah absolutely i mean if your main goal is to make this as most off timber as you possibly can off your property, 
Um, I don't think you're going to get there, but you can make, you know, 75% of it. Um, and, and that's just, you know, what are you more concerned about, you know, making money off of your timber or, or having a, a good all around property that does everything. Um, and, it, and it's, you know, reminiscent of what it was, you know, a hundred years ago. And, and that's going to look the same way for future generations. I think that's the, that's the, the way to do it in, in my opinion. But, um, I know, uh, I, I want to say this too, just because, uh, you mentioned it earlier about the, I think everybody thinks that it all, you know, all of us as foresters went to, went to college and were taught all this green environmentalist stuff that non-natives are bad. Uh, and if they're, if y'all, if y'all went to forestry school, it's probably like mine. We learned how to farm trees. That's what I learned in forestry school is how to farm trees. All of these opinions on how ecosystems work, all of this, I learned on my own in the field after forestry school, observing observe observing these woodlands and how they're supposed to function and so these are opinions that i had i formed from experience from seeing these places on my own and i guarantee you these guys did the same thing i'm sure they're a totally different forester now than they were the the month after they graduated forestry school I absolutely you that's right you know I, I heard a quote and i wish i could remember who said it but uh the quote was something to the effect of we don't own the land we're just borrowing it from future generations or we're borrowing it from our children, our grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And, and in real estate, you know, I I do a little real estate stuff too. They've got a phrase called best and highest use. So a lot of times they look at property from the significance or from the rule of thumb of best and highest use. And I've realized that foresters, well, let me rephrase it. Good foresters do the same thing they're looking at that at that area from what its best and highest use should be. And I think that I think that's really important. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Let's let's move a few hundred miles north. Let's move to Missouri and let's talk about let's hear from Derek that covers most of the state of Missouri on what out of all the properties that you step foot on and it's a bunch of them. I know I talk to you quite regularly and I know you're all over the state. Um what do you see across the state of Missouri that landowners, private landowners could do to have a better turkey population? First and foremost would be cuts. Don't be scared to cut some timber. I see way, way too many overstocked closed canopy stands that could very, very well benefit both you monetarily and the wildlife benefits that you're going to gain from it. Two, don't be scared of fire. Fire can be one of the very best tools in your arsenal and it's relatively free. And three, going to really agree with Kyle on that, put away the brush hog. Don't worry about if things are going to get a little bit tall. You know, those warm season grasses and forbs are there for a reason. Bar none, the biggest impact that you're going to have on your turkeys, on your small birds, your ground nesting birds, anything like that. You really need to look at the component that's going to keep you brood habitat and nesting habitat. And the last but not least is going to be invasives. Invasives, in my opinion, is one of the worst things for the turkey poults, quail poults, and your ground nesting birds. Because invasives, if you love them or hate them, they're basically one of the biggest causes of the decline. Because A, these these organisms have not been here for that long and our native ecosystems are not able to contend with them so using them as a as a habitat tool is an absolute it's just sickening really and truly Let's move a few hundred miles further north. And Greg, I have no idea what your turkey population is like. I've never stepped foot in Pennsylvania in my life. But let's hear <laughs> from you on the same 
on the same question. How could you have more turkeys on all the properties that you look at? I, th- I think we're we're a little bit better off than the the South, where our our reproduct turkey reproduction rates are are at least supposed to be holding their own. But that's that's debatable on who you talk to. Okay. Um, I'm gonna echo really just a lot of the a lot of the same sentiments without without diving too far into the weeds um the i think it would it would be very beneficial not just to turkeys but to a number of species to have um we definitely need to be focused more on on healthy young forest habitat um that's that's been a, a major talking point with organizations like the Rough Grouse Society and others. Um, the the Mid Atlantic region out into the Midwest, especially not not the far far northern, um, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Those states have good grouse populations, but here in Pennsylvania, down into West Virginia and whatnot, there we're losing grouse. Um, so not to change the subject, but um, cutting cutting and, and getting healthy young forests would definitely uh would benefit a number of species um another talking point too on on the invasives is there's been a significant amount of research done on the the lack of biodiversity not just not just the plant community but um species like white oak support over a hundred insects yet autumn olive supports like two so, you know, you think about if you're a turkey poult and everything you eat, is, you know, your your high protein diet in that first few weeks of life is bugs. If everything you're looking at is invasives and doesn't support a whole lot of insect life, you know, that's the almost the lowest level of the, the basic food web that we learn in high school biology. Um, you know, those, those species that you think might be deer cover don't have nearly the benefits of something native. Um, not that we're all paying attention to bugs, but it's a it's a big deal when you're trying to grow things that need to eat them. Um, I think uh, you know if it's if it's a truly wildlife property, and I know the land and legacy guys talk about this. You know, the the legacy of farming and those cool season grasses that did a really good job of feeding horses and cows. Deal with those in in the old you know just just letting a field grow back and it's still just the same stuff it was 10 years ago, you just let it get tall is not the same as, as managing for invasives. Um, simple stuff that's talked about, you know, edge feathering. If, if that's all you have time to do as a, as a landowner, go, go knock some trees down on that edge, get, you know, get that nice sloped, you know, if you were to look at it, you know, we call it the, you know, the transition rather than these hard edges of green grass to stone wall to big tree and nothing in between. Um, you know, I think there's, there's plenty to do, but, um, you know, and this is a, this is a a long, really long winded topic and we don't have enough time tonight probably, but, um, you know, I think the, the bigger issue too, is that those of us that are active and this goes for the landowners that are listening, you know, be, be an advocate, you know, to your neighbors too. Um, you know, the, the landowner community that's truly concerned with conservation really isn't that big. Um, it seems like there's a whole lot of us when you, you get into arguments on, on social media, but I'm here to tell you that you could spend a lot more time educating your neighbors on making good decisions. And it's far more valuable than arguing over who makes the best broadhead or rifle loader. (laughs) Absolutely. <laughs> For sure. Boy, Thomas. Hey man, I, I got another one and I know I'll ruffle feathers and people will uh, be trying to find out where I live so they can come burn my house down. But I, I'm just going to, I want to say this because of some recent stuff I've seen and heard of um, consultants or quote unquote professionals. And I'm using that term very loosely that are promoting invasives i'm not talking about non-natives i'm not a native purist i i do plant food plots you know so what i'm planting in my food plot is an is not native uh to where i to where i live so i i'm i'm not a crazy zealot yet but uh if if you are a consultant or professional or an individual that is promoting non 
not necessarily non-natives, but let's 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 focus on invasives. And you're promoting that, and you're telling people to leave it, grow it, plant it. You're either uneducated, you're stupid, or you're a prostitute. One of the three. So <laughs> you're doing it to make money for yourself. I'm just yeah. saying, come burn my house down if you want to. You, or you just don't know, and that's okay. That's fine. Or, or you're stupid, and I, I can't do nothing with that. But that's just the truth. You know, yep. I, I asked the question about increasing turkey population, and we just covered it from pretty far south to pretty far north, all the Midwest. Nobody mentioned trapping. Nobody. And we're sitting there with a group of professionals that are all in the field all day long, every day, rain, shine, sleet, snow, 100 degrees, whatever. Everybody is in the field all day, every day. And no one mentioned trapping. Um, if I ask each one of you, what's the best method of controlling predators on your property? I think you've already answered the question. I think the answer you give to increase turkeys is also managing against predation for them. Does anybody disagree with that statement? No, not at all. You know, they, uh, we're talking about ground nesting birds. I know Greg mentioned grouse. Um, we talked about ground nesting birds. I know that Kyle's going to mention quail probably as, as one of the top in there. Um, and we're all concerned about that, you know, in our specific areas, whichever one it might be that that actually needs catered to a little more than the other. But we can't deny that turkey poults really need the same thing no matter where they live. They all have the same requirements. And by doing this habitat restoration work that y'all have all talked about to increase turkey production, we're managing against predation on all of them as well. With, with every move we make. So I, I would venture to say that of all the group, the five of us that are sitting here, none of us really have that drastic of predation problems. It's not something that enters our mind when we talk about, boy, how, how are we going to get more turkeys? Nobody blamed your state DNR. Nobody, none of you said you wanted the rules and regulations changed to protect turkeys and help bring them back. You all talked about things that you see covering thousands of acres in a year's time that could help. And I think that's phenomenal. I just, I just wish everybody could, uh, could see through the eyes that we all see it through. Now, if I ask a question, probably the biggest, uh, the most sportsmen that we have out there after anything are probably after deer. If we ask each one of you, how do you grow bigger bucks on your property? And we know we can't control genetics and we know we've got to let them mature. But outside of, of being able to change your genetics and letting a deer mature, does your, does your, uh, would your answers change any? If I would have asked you instead of turkeys, if I'd ask you about how to grow big bucks. Not really. <laughs> Not at all. I think we better start wrapping things up, but gentlemen, I appreciate y'all coming on. I appreciate everybody's perspective. And it just, uh, I think it's really cool that perspectives didn't change much from the South to the Midwest to, uh, Northern States. Uh, when, uh, all of y'all pretty much have the same outlook, same prescription, same recommendations, for pretty much everything. The species changed a little bit, but even the species aren't changing that much. We're still dealing with a lot of the same invasives and a lot of the same plant communities uh, that are native. So um, does anybody have anything they'd like to add before we before we wrap things up here? Man, I just want to say thanks to these guys for you know what they do on Facebook, uh, social media, what they do with their landowners. Um, you know, they're making a difference on the landscape, it's got to be pretty rewarding to be impacting as many acres. I I would be shocked to know if we added up the acres that are that are impacted by the this group of guys right here. I'd be shocked to know how many acres that that is. But 
you guys are making a difference. Um, you know, don't get discouraged in it. I want you to keep, keep doing it. I love what you put out on, on social media. Y'all are doing a great job. I love what you're doing. Actual boots on the ground. You're doing a great job. And I really appreciate uh, y'all spending some time with us today. Yes, thanks absolutely. for having us on. Yeah, appreciate well, it. Well, thanks, guys. And uh, we want to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in. And we'll, we'll catch y'all next week on the uh, Sawdust and Fire podcast. Y'all have a great week. <laughs>